Dr. Edward Schlamm. He was a dermatologist practicing in Sunrise, Florida. The year was around 1979. An adolescent boy had an appointment with this doctor. And it just so happened that that adolescent boy's mother worked for the doctor as well. Now that absent-minded adolescent forgot the appointment, being preoccupied with typical adolescent things. And when confronted, this adolescent boy responded in a rather flippant fashion, not understanding why it was so important that we not miss appointments. The doctor was, shall we say, less than amused, and it caused some rather significant stress in both the office and that boy's household that evening. Now, in case you were wondering, that forgetful adolescent was me. But we can't blame the doctor. Who hasn't felt the disappointment of having a promise broken? A show of hands, who's had a promise to them broken? Okay, some of y'all lying, because there's a lot more than that. Okay. It happens all the time. Uh, it's not always deliberate either. Uh, pastor Nate related a story about a pastor friend of his in China uh, by his testimony, a wonderful gentleman with the best of intentions. He had promised his son he'd camp out with him on top of the Great Wall during a trip. Well, what happened? Poured down rain the entire time. They couldn't camp out. The boy is disappointed. But it wasn't something that the father could control. I didn't deliberately blow off the doctor's appointment, I just forgot. But because human beings are fallible, our promises can only be so reliable. Now sometimes a broken promise doesn't make much difference. Oh, I'm sorry, I forgot to pick up eggs. Relatively minor, most of us would shrug it off and go pick up some eggs and have done with it. But some promises matter more. Marriage vows, for example. Now, if you've ever borrowed money, you probably signed something called a promissory note in which you promise to pay back the money at a certain rate over a specified time period. That's why they call it a promissory note. Business partners have elaborate agreements on the responsibility of each and what's to happen if one of them doesn't live up to his end of the bargain. And not to pick on our political class, but most of us are probably familiar with the phrase campaign promise, meaning something the politician says to get elected but has absolutely no intention whatsoever of fulfilling. These promises are more important because the consequences of breaking them are more serious. Broken marriages are devastating to everyone involved. Failure to pay a mortgage brings foreclosure and homelessness. Breaking or defrauding a business partnership leads to financial ruin, not only for the one breaking the arrangement, for, but for many others. And the consequences of not following through on policy promises can be very dangerous to everyone who lives under that government. Now, sadly, most of us, like me, have at various times broken promises. Show of hands, who here has ever broken a promise? Don't worry, the camera's pointed up here, so they won't see you. Okay? Yeah, sure. And whether or not we realize it, our own tendency to break promises and the experience of having promises broken has made us a little cynical about believing promises. We demand guarantees, like the aforementioned legal consequences of breaking a mortgage. Some folks attempt to use the law to get even in the case of a divorce. Those remedies, though, really don't satisfy. We need to see promises that last, 
promises we can rely on. Now, in Genesis 15, we see God make a promise to Abram. That promise is different from human promises. For one, we generally make or accept promises from other people that seem feasible. Now, if a friend promises to pick me up at the airport, sure, I can believe that. If a human being promises he'll bring my father back to life, probably not going to believe that one. So how feasible is God's promise in Genesis 15? Abram certainly thinks it's far-fetched. He's making plans to name a servant as his heir. Now, this was a fairly common practice in the Middle East at the time. If you didn't have any children, you would name a servant as your heir so that your property would be passed on. But we can't say that Abram hasn't heard this promise from God before. Back in Genesis 13, 16, we see Abram told by God that his offspring will be as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Genesis 15 isn't the first time Abram's heard this from God. We don't know for certain what was going on in his heart, but we do know it was nagging at him that he had no children, and he thought he was too old to father any. He was suffering from the conflict between wanting to believe God and the practicalities of human reproduction. Maybe he was thinking that God would use Abram's servant, Eliezer, as a sort of father by proxy. So Abram's children would actually be physically Eliezer's children. Now we see a similar kind of conflict later in chapter 22 when God calls Abram to sacrifice Isaac. The author of Hebrews tells us that Abraham believed that God would raise Isaac from the dead after the sacrifice. That'd be in Hebrews 11:19. Now in both cases, Abraham was trying to shoehorn God's promises that didn't seem realistic into what he considered realistic. <clears throat> but God squelches that notion. He explicitly promises Abram that his own son will be his heir. And when, then we see that famous verse, Genesis 15, 16, which Paul quotes for us in Romans 4, 9. Abram believed the Lord, and he counted, counted it to him as righteousness. Now, what does that sound like? To have righteousness counted to you based on believing the Lord. That's an early form of the gospel. It's imputed righteousness obtained by grace through faith. God does for us what we can't do for ourselves on our behalf. So keep that idea in the back of your head. We'll come back to it. Now, I won't dwell on it, but the ceremony we see in verses 9 to 10 and 17 to 21 of Genesis 15 is an ancient covenant ceremony. It's sort of a partnership agreement. In the ancient world, individuals entering into a contract or covenant would often divide animals in half and walk between the pieces, in essence saying, this should happen to me if I break my word. <clears throat> but why should God put this ceremony on display for Abram? Didn't our Abram already believe him in verse 6? Well, I think this was for Abram's comfort. Abram asks, for a sign confirming, confirming the promise of the land in Genesis 15, 8. So he's already indicated that he's feeling a little insecure. He needs some reassurance. Now, God knows full well that he's going to keep his promises. 
But he also knows that we humans are cynical and have trouble believing things that we can't reconcile with what we know. So God participating in this ceremony, which unilaterally, I might add, he's the only one who walks between the pieces, <clears throat> is a way of providing Abram with some reassurance in a familiar con context that the Lord's word is trustworthy. This is a form of God condescending to our weaknesses. Now, another way God condescends to his cynical creatures to reassure us of his promises is repetition. He doesn't make a promise just once. He repeats it many times, partially because we're hard-headed and partially because he's just reassuring us multiple times. So, for example, let's look at the promise to Abram of a multitude of offspring. It doesn't only appear in chapter 15 of Genesis. We also see it in Genesis 12, 2, Genesis 13, 16, Genesis 17, 5, Genesis 17, 16, Genesis 18, 10. And finally, in Genesis 21, the promise is realized with the birth of Isaac. You'll find that throughout Scripture, God almost never makes a promise only once. So repetition and the covenant ceremony, God chooses to use to reassure Abram of the reliability of the Lord's promises. But let's think about it as a practical matter for a moment. This ceremony has no teeth. How would Abram enforce a penalty on God if the promise is broken? I've taken literally the idea of applying divided animals to God is absurd. God has no body to divide into. On top of which, there is no court that could possibly mete out a punishment to the Almighty. No legal contract with which to enforce a penalty. Now this is where Paul goes in Romans 4, that the promise rests on grace through faith and not on the law. Okay? If we back up to Romans 4.14, we read that if we depend on law, then faith is null and the promise is void. Now I don't want to lose Paul's central point here. He's, he's speaking of keeping the law as a means of salvation. He's speaking of the Mosaic law, so I don't want to read into the text something that, that isn't there. That's Paul's central point. But we have to realize that our impulse to protect ourselves with layers of legal consequences doesn't work with God. It doesn't work. We can't rely on a court system to enforce God's promises. So his promises are not only more fantastic than any human promise, a 100-year-old man becoming the father of many nations, really? but they cannot rest on the same foundation. In verse 16 of chapter 4, Paul tells us explicitly that the promise rests on grace. Whose grace? God's grace. And what is the result? That the promise is guaranteed to all of Abraham's offspring. And how does Abraham define offspring? Again, in verse 16. Look there. All those who share Abraham's faith, not just the adherents of the law, and certainly not just his physical descendants. So then in verse 17, Paul moves on to give us a different kind of guarantee. It's not a legal guarantee. It's not a covenant ceremony. What do you see it? What, do you see it there? How does Paul characterize God? 
He's the one who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In other words, no legal contract, no court, no system is the guarantee of God's promises. What is? His character and his capability. Hebrews 6.13 tells us, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. It's in God's character to redeem, to bring life from death, to create everything from nothing. It's also within his power. His capability and character are not only better than legal contracts or requirements, they're infinitely better. There is no guarantee better than God's word. So then in verse 18, we see this apparent contradiction. In hope, he believed against hope. Huh? What Paul is telling us there is that Abraham's faith was rooted in hope in God, not in the physical realities. Our Lord tells us in Mark 10, 27, with man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. For humans, the situation was hopeless. God isn't constrained. There are no circumstances, no unforeseen contingency, no lack of capability that can interfere with God keeping his promises. That's our real hope. So along these lines, Paul continues in verse 19. Abraham is commended for maintaining his faith in spite of the physical condition of his and Sarah's bodies. Now, what was that condition? Good as dead. Barren. In fact, the Greek word that's translated as barrenness in verse 19 is necrosis, death. Now, those of you who have a medical background may recognize that term. We've borrowed it into our medical lexicon to mean tissue that is completely dead, irrecoverable, will not heal, has to be cut out. This is not the place you look for life. This is not the place you look for new birth. Okay? So human hope at this point is dead. But Abraham's hope wasn't in the human. It was in God. Paul has just pointed out that God is the one who brings life from death, existence from non-existence. A birth from a dead womb is a resurrection. It's bringing life from death. This is the basis of Abraham's faith. Again, who God is and what he's capable of. Now, that was what we were discussing earlier, that conflict between what seems possible to us and what God has promised. We must always remember that God is more capable than we can possibly imagine. Nothing is beyond him. Paul here is commending Abraham for believing that. And in verse 22, Abraham's unwavering faith is given as the reason why it was counted to him as righteousness. Verse 21 tells us he was fully convinced that God is able. So, are you fully convinced? Paul certainly hopes to convince you. Look there at verses 23 to 25 with me. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, 
who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Now, after spending several verses defining precisely the kind of faith that brings righteousness by God's grace, Paul wants his readers to understand fully the kind of faith needed. Many of you have heard me make mention before of the linguistic difference between maybe the common definition of the word believe and the biblical definition. When you see believe in the New Testament, the Greek word is usually pisteul. This word implies much more than a simple intellectual assent of the facts. Yep, we're good. Jesus born, died, resurrected. Hey, we're cool. It implies rather a wholehearted committed trust. What does Paul want his readers to trust? Well, let's break it down. First, he identifies Abram's faith in Genesis 15 as a type or foreshadow of our faith. See there where it was written for our sake? Remember how Paul argued back in verse 16 that all who share Abraham's faith are his offspring? Imputed righteousness is granted by grace through faith, and Abraham was the prototype, the father of us all, right? But that doesn't mean he's the only one. Paul is telling us that he's telling the Roman Christians and us that God's plan wasn't just for Abraham, but for them and for us today and for all time. The redemptive pattern is repeated throughout Scripture, and it's always accessible to those who believe. Note in verse 24 how God's power to raise from the dead is applied to Jesus. We saw, how, we saw earlier how Paul characterizes life from death as within God's character and capability. Now he gives us a concrete example, the resurrection of Jesus. So not only does God have this power, not only is life from death part of his character, but he has proven it explicitly with a real-world historical example. Now, there are people out there who will criticize Christianity as saying, well, they just want you to believe and not to have it make any sense. It's just blind faith. But blind faith isn't biblical. God doesn't ask us for blind faith. He has provided a multitude of examples where he has demonstrated his power, proved his character, and kept his promises. Paul is giving us one of those examples here, saying that our faith is based on an historical event that demonstrated God's power and, and uh, character. That event is just like the conception and birth of Isaac. That's the parallel he's drawing here. Life from death, something impossible by human standards, but demonstrated in real history by our God. Now, further proof of God's reliability is given in verse 25. We see there an encapsulation of the reason for Jesus' death and resurrection. The reason for his death was what? Our trespasses. And the reason for his resurrection is what? Our justification. Excuse me a moment. I've got a bit of a throat cold here. <clears throat> Paul here is giving us, his readers, assurance of two things. That the price for our sins has been paid and that we will be resurrected to live again. 
the need for a substitutional death for sin was well established in the Old Testament, from the sacrificial system of Leviticus to the prophecies of Isaiah's suffering servant. Remember, he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. That's Isaiah 53.5. The resurrection is evidence that Jesus' sacrifice on the cross was acceptable to God. Under the law, well, how do, we, how do we know that? How do we know that this sacrifice was acceptable? Well, under the law, the one who obeys will live, and the disobedient one dies. Um, for example, uh, you don't have to turn there right now, but Deuteronomy chapter 3, 15 through 20, gives us this principle. That's one of the places. There are many others. Because God raised Jesus from the dead, we have assurance that he was perfectly obedient to the Father because only the righteous shall live. If Jesus had not obeyed perfectly, then he would not be deserving of resurrection. <clears throat> His righteousness is imputed to us. He obeyed where we could not. Paul goes so far in 1 Corinthians to say that the resurrection is crucial as proof of salvation. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Fast-forwarding a bit to Romans 6, we see in verse 7 that death brings freedom from sin, and in verse 9 that death no longer has dominion over Jesus. The resurrection is proof that our justification is complete and that we are fully bought and paid for. The God who brings dead wombs to life brought his son back to life, free of the influence of sin, and promises to do the same for us. Our trust in God isn't like trusting an adolescent boy to show up for an appointment. It's not based on human frailty, finite power, legal contracts. His ways are not our ways. His ways are higher than the heavens above the earth, Isaiah 55, 9. So what are you trusting? What promises do you anchor to? What guarantee will you accept? We're approaching Christmas, my favorite holiday. I, I annoy my poor, poor wife no end because I like Christmas in July. But <clears throat> Amidst all the busyness, planning, travel, crowds, and everything else that accompanies the season, let's remember to focus on a promise our God made way back in the Garden of Eden, that the woman's offspring would crush the serpent's head. That promise was carried through the line of Abraham and Isaac to the virgin birth promised in Isaiah and realized in Bethlehem to the cross and the empty tomb. A promise from God to beat all promises ever made. And it has been fulfilled. That is our hope, our guarantee, and the reason we celebrate. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gift of your son. Thank you for the